Y'all ready to jump in? All right, let's do it. You know, it's pretty easy to tell what someone is most proud of. Even if you don't know them, you can, you can pretty easily tell. There's lots of ways you can do that. One of the ways that you can tell that someone's proud of something is by uh, the bumper stickers that they have on the back of their car. Uh, maybe you, you see them riding around town that says, you know, my child is an honor roll student at such and such elementary school or whatever school. Then you see the, the sticker that said, my child beat up your honor roll student. Uh, <laughs> Or maybe you'll see like somebody will put their sports team back there. Or my favorite, you see a Grace Point sticker on the back of somebody's car. Or um, you see somebody put their like, little stick figure family back there and they have their pets. Uh, they have their like, mom and dad and son and daughter and their two like cat and dog right there. Um, speaking of pets, <laughs> do you know how you can tell which pet owners are, are proud of their pets, which ones are? They're usually pushing them around in strollers. <laughs> yeah, but there's lots of ways that you can tell. Uh, another way that you can tell that someone, what someone is most proud of is by the way they speak or you know, what they talk about the most, right? You hear them, they're, they're always kind of talking about uh, their, their team or their kids or their careers or uh, their homes or, or their sports team. Can we say go Knights, go? Yeah. Do you might go to the parade yesterday? All right, a few of you went. I, I, I watched a little bit of it on TV. Um, some of your sports teams, you don't have much to brag about. But that's okay. We still love you. But on a serious level, let me ask you this morning. What do you boast in? If someone were to evaluate your life and evaluate your speech what would they be able to discern about you and what you boast in? Because what Paul is going to be talking about in our text today, he says that if you are a follower of Jesus, when it comes down to it, at the very end of the day, the only thing that matters is this, is that we can only boast in Jesus. And so today we are continuing our series through the book of Romans. And so if you have your Bibles, Turn with me over to Romans chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 27, and we're going to try to wrap up chapter 3 this week. Now, if you don't have a Bible, we lead, teach, and preach from God's Word around here, so we say this all the time, that you need a Bible, not just to follow along here, but like we, we want you to have God's Word in your hand all the time. So we have uh, little tables around the gathering center that has uh, Bibles on them. They're English and Spanish. You can get up right now and go grab one of those. No one's going to look at you weird. Uh, you can... Keep that, take that, it's yours. Consider our gift to you. We also have Bibles out there at our center point area uh, that you can just grab on your way out. Or you can uh, go download the YouVersion app and you can follow along on there as well. Now, what I want to do is I want to catch you up into where we've been uh, since we've started the book of Romans. Because really what Paul has been doing, even though we're almost three chapters into this, he's kind of just had one continuous thought the whole time. And what that continuous thought is, is we're all a bunch of dirty, rotten sinners. That's what he's been saying for three chapters. It's been all bad news. He kind of sums it up last week when he said in Romans 3.23, he says, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Now, some of you uh, are here and you're like, well, Tim, you know, I'm a pretty good person. 
Um, you know, I, I go to church, you know, I listen to SOS radio, I pop a 20 in the plate every now and then, you know, I serve every other week on a, on a serving team. You know, I'm pretty good. I'm better than those, those um, irreligious people that Paul's been talking about in chapter one. And so Paul spent all of chapter two saying, no, uh, you religious people uh, are just as bad as the irreligious people. And just because you're religious does not mean that you are redeemed. And then we get to last week. And last week, we hear this first little bit of good news. It's our first glimpse into some good news. And so it's all have sinned, all have fall short of the glory of God. But look down in Romans 3, 24. He says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. So bad news, none of us are righteous. We are all sinners. Good news, Jesus is. Bad news, we all deserve to die because of our rebellion. But the good news is that Jesus died in our place because of his love for us. That's the gospel. This is what we boast in. And so the question before us today is that when it comes to our salvation, what do we boast in? Now, I'd be willing to bet your money that every single person in here um, would, would agree with Tim. I agree. We boast in nothing but Jesus. If you agree with that, would you just raise your hand? You, you, you don't agree with that? If, okay, let me try that again. If you agree that we boast in nothing but Jesus, raise your hand. Okay, we're getting a little better. Okay, we got some work today. It's a good thing we're preaching through this. <laughs> that wasn't a trick question, I promise you. Um, but let me ask you, do you really? See, we would all profess this with our mouths, but do we really live this out in our lives? Well, let's walk through our text this morning and see. Look down in verse 27. Paul says, then what becomes of our boasting? He says, so if this is true, if we are justified by faith and it is a gift of God by his grace, then what becomes of our boasting? He says, it is excluded. He says, but what kind of law? By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. And what Paul has been saying all along is that if we are redeemed, any boasting in ourselves, in our abilities, in our good ideas, in our good choices, Paul says it is excluded. It's not even a part of the conversation. And this word law here, he says, by what kind of law? He's really saying, but by what kind of principle? That's probably a better translation of it instead of saying law. So what kind of principle? But how? How is our boasting excluded? Well, Paul says, by our faith. Not by our works, but by our faith. And so what Paul is saying is that if you are a Christ follower, that there's only one thing that you can boast in, and it's not something that you have done. Who is it that we can only boast in? Okay. Uh, I think Paul sums this up really well in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. He says, For by grace... You've been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. And so we see is this gift, this grace of God. Nothing that we have done, it's not about any good choice or good decision that we have made. It's only what Christ has done for us. That is the only thing that we can boast. Now, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, evangelical Christianity has agreed with this premise. Look at verse 28. Paul says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. He's saying, this is what we hold to. This is our confession. This is our belief that you, if you are a Christ follower, you believe this. This is your outward confession. We hold to this belief that salvation comes by grace alone through faith alone. And this is what we espouse as Christians. But I think Paul is asking a very important question back in verse 27. He says, by what kind of law? And he gives two choices, a law of works and a law of faith. Now, we would agree, law of faith over a law of works, but before you answer that, before we look at that, I want to define for us what a law of faith is and what a law of works is, because I think it's important for where we're going today. First, a law of faith is this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Will we agree with that? It's a pretty good formula for a law of faith. Versus a law of works, which is this idea of externalism plus separatism equals legalism. And we're going to kind of walk through that today. Now, does anyone want to guess who in the New Testament was famous for practicing a law of works? Paul, yeah, but what was Paul? Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. Uh, very good. So Pharisees, they were really good at practicing the law of works. Now, if you don't know who the Pharisees were, a Pharisee uh, was a, a group of uh, religious people. They were very self-righteous who prided themselves in obeying all of the 613 uh, Mosaic Jewish laws. And so they boasted about their ability to do that. And in fact, they probably could boast because they were the best at it. They followed the law better than anyone else. Like they, they, and they thought that by doing all of this, that that made them right with God. And they thought they were justified by this law of works. But the Pharisees overlooked two sins. The first one is the sin of externalism. Now, externalism is this idea of when you are so focused on outward religious activity that you are distracted from inward change. In other words, externalism is about, I'm doing all the things right on the outside, but my character is never really being grown or transformed into Christ-likeness. And really, the Pharisees, they only had one category for sin. And that category for sin was just don't do bad things and do good things and that's it. As long as I, that's okay. They had no category for the internal sin 
of doing good things but for the wrong motives. It's kind of like uh, I'm kind to someone, but it makes it okay even if I'm trying to manipulate them because the outward um, external behavior is that I'm being kind to you. It doesn't matter the reason why I'm doing it or to manipulate you, right? And so the Pharisees had no category for that. They were only focused on the external, not the internal. This is why Jesus calls them in, in Matthew 23. He says, you're whitewashed tombs. He says, you are clean on the outside, but you're really just full of death and rot on the inside. And the problem with the Pharisees is they were boasting on all these externals. Like, look at me. Look at how God, much God loves me. Look how right and holy I am with God. Look at how well I obey all of the rules. Um, to make matters worse, the Pharisees didn't even boast in that. The people looked at the Pharisees and boasted in their works. Like, look at how good they are. Look at how righteous they are. Look at how holy they are. Look at how good they are at following all the rules. And the Pharisees confused the approval of man with the approval of God. And that became very confusing for them. And so we get that, that that's not a good way to be as Christians. And so we as Christians, we never act like that, do we? That's the Pharisees, nothing like us. But can we all be a little honest this morning and be willing to admit that there is still a little Pharisee that lives inside each and every one of us? Now, we don't want to be a Pharisee. No one says, hey, I want to be a Pharisee. But let's be honest, there's a Pharisee that lives inside of us. Well, Tim, how do you know that, that it lives inside of all of us? Well, let me ask you this. When you're obeying God and you're reading your Bible and listening to SOS radio and maybe you help someone with a handout and you know, your, your prayer life's pretty good and you're walking along and you're like, man, I feel really close to God right now. I feel like, yeah, God loves me. Me and him, we're tight. We're good. But what happens if you had a bad day? Maybe you're feeling a little down. Maybe you're feeling a little depressed. Maybe you haven't really felt like much lately, like reading the Bible, or maybe you haven't really felt like praying, and you, you kind of just, you know, uh, just kind of going along, and, and you get this kind of sudden sense like, man, I'm so far away from God. I'm not doing all these things. God just must not be pleased with me right now. He's not happy with me right now. Did you ever be that way? That's the little Pharisee that still lives inside of us. Still don't believe me that we can be like this? Let me put it this way to you. Externalism is just a fancy way for saying hip hypocrisy. Externalism is just another way of saying being a hypocrite. Now, I want to kind of define what a hypocrite is because I think there's some misconceptions around that this morning. So hypocrisy is the gap between my public persona and my private character. It's this idea that I outwardly appear righteous to others while actually being full of self-indulgence and uncleanliness on the inside. That is hypocrisy. It's kind of like leading a double life. And really, hypocrisy and externalism is just kind of masking your sin with religious activity. One, uh, one pastor puts it this way. He says, The hypocrite is not the Christian who struggles against sin, fights against temptation, and keeps doing what is right even on his worst feeling days. 
That's a hero. The hypocrite is the Christian who uses the veneer of public virtue to cover the rot of private vice. He's the man living a double life, the woman fooling her friends because she has church clothes, the student who proudly answers the questions in Sunday school and just as proudly romps through immorality the rest of the week. See, the reality is, is that we all struggle with sin. But just because we struggle with sin doesn't make us hypocrites. Here's what I mean. We Christians, we get accused of being hypocrites all the time. And sometimes the accusation is correct, and sometimes it's not. It's just kind of a, a blanket term that's thrown against us. Now, just because we profess that we shouldn't do something and then we turn around and do that very thing doesn't mean that we're automatically a hypocrite. It just means that we're automatically a, a sinner. And, and we get that from what Paul's been saying for the first three chapters. So it's not that we're like, okay, we all agree that, that lying is a sin and we shouldn't do that. So, uh, so it's not, we would all say lying's bad, don't do that. But how many of us have, though, even though we profess that lying is bad, have still lied? Some of you just lied. Uh, <laughs> um, right. And so just because we say, hey, I believe that we shouldn't do this and we still struggle with sin and we do that doesn't necessarily make us a hypocrite. Hypocrisy is this idea is that I am engaging in religious activity here in front of these people or a group of people, but then behind closed doors, I live a completely different lifestyle from that. It's kind of like my Monday through Saturday does not match up with my Sunday. That's what being a hypocrite is. It's, it's, it's leading this double life. So let me ask you, is there a sin that you are struggling with that you are pretending like you don't? Is there a secret sin? Is there a shadow side that no one knows about. See, I'm not saying that everyone needs to know all of your dirty laundry. I'm not saying everyone needs to know all the things, but, but at least someone in your life needs to know, like, hey, I struggle with this. Someone in your life that you can go to and confess to and um, be held accountable to and someone who can show you grace and someone uh, who can who pray for you and encourage you as you struggle with that sin. But it's hypocrisy when you hold yourself as this religious person and, but no one knows the rot that's going on in the inside. Now, we all have things that God's working out of us, but the difference is, does somebody know it? Are you confessing? Are you repenting? Are you, are, are you, you know, just talking to someone about that? If this is us, then we are practicing externalism, and we're kind of boasting in a law of works. We're saying, look at me as this religious person, but we're ignoring what's going on on the inside. But when we admit our sin and we're trusting that Jesus has already forgiven us, then that's when we become to this place where we're boasting in this law of faith. Because when we're boasting in this law of faith, we can come clean with our sin. We can freely go and say, hey, this is where I'm struggling with. Can you pray for me? Can you encourage me? Can you uh, extend some grace? Can you help keep me accountable? 
And when we can freely admit our sin, we we should be able to do that because the, the cross has already outed us as sinners that need a Savior. This is externalism. So you get to externalism, and then you add this idea of separatism. And so this is the other sin the Pharisees like to ignore. Look down here in verse 29. He said, or is it God, the God of the Jews, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So we have Jew and Gentile, two people, but one God. And Paul contends because there's only one God, then there's only one way of justification because there's only one God. Now, I want you to remember, this is a first century context. And you have Jews, the Jewish people, who are ethnic Jews, descendants of Abraham. Um, They're following the Mosaic Law, all 613. They're, They're doing sacrifices. They're doing all these things. And then also at the same time, you had Gentiles, anybody that was not that was not a Jew or not Jewish. And they did not follow Jewish law. They weren't following the, the, the rules of, of, clean, of, of, of being kosher and sacrifice and clean and unclean. And now you have these two types of people that are mixing in this New Testament church. And really kind of what was happening is these Jewish people were saying to these Gentiles, you're not keeping the law, you're not obeying the rules, you're unclean, we can't have anything to do with you. And if you got half the church saying you're unclean and we can't have anything to do with you, you could imagine that there were some divisions going on within the church, am I right? And so what was happening is they were practicing this, this concept of separatism, meaning we have to separate ourselves from what is unclean. And this is, and really what separatism is, is this idea that since sin is all about what I do externally, then I need to stay away from people who do bad stuff and don't go to bad places. And I end up criticizing the people who do. But what Paul's done here is he's showing that all have sinned. All have fallen short. He says, you're all in the same boat. He says, um, you, you aren't justified by being separate from other sinners who may or may not do worse things than you. He's saying, like, there's only one way to be right with God. Now, we as Christians, we would never do this, would we? Yeah, we do. We do. We do it sometimes without even recognizing it. Uh, It's this idea that once we get saved, we fall headlong into this Christian subculture and we reject anything secular. And like because of this, we kind of sometimes take this self-righteous posture that I'm better than maybe even some other Christians because I engage in more Christian activities than you or I engage in more uh, redeemed things than you do. And so we get to this place where we only listen to Christian music and we only watch Christian movies and we only have Christian friends and uh, we kind of sit in this this Christian bubble of self-righteousness. 
And we, we, we sit here uh, surrounded by all of our Christian things, and we look down on all those people who aren't participating in all the Christian things that we participate in. And when we sit in our bubble of self-righteousness, we inevitably begin to look down on others. And if we find ourselves looking down on others, the thing that we are looking down on them for is likely the very thing that we're trusting in to be in right standing for God. Or at least just to consider ourselves right. So if we look down on others for behaving a certain way or not behaving a certain way, we can know that our, our, um, our, our separatism, we're looking at our, our behavior to make us right. Or uh, like, I'm better because I educate my kids this way. Homeschool, private school, public school, whichever. I'm, I'm, I look down on you for, why would you not educate your kids this way? Here's a big one. Political affiliation. I look down on you because I hold a better, superior um, political theory than you do. So we're trusting in politics to, to save us. Um, or, you know, or, or doctrine or anything else. Here, here's one that's big time in our culture right now. Do you look down on others because maybe you're more tolerant of them, than them? Or do you look down on others because maybe you're more inclusive than they are? Or you're, you're more about, uh, you're more into the social justice aspects than those around us? It's, it's really just this one big outdo one another in social justice contest. And we look down on those who maybe don't uh, uh, um, engage in the social justice issues that we do. Now, like, don't hear me, social justice issues are, are, are good, and, and we should care about those things. But if we're using that to be able to look down on others in light of that, that's what we're trusting in rather than Jesus. We kind of take this posture that we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. And this is what separatism does. Now, separatism is a little sneaky. And sometimes we're not even aware that we're doing it. It's not so overt. And here's how we know. There's a statistic out there that says once the average person becomes a believer in Christ, he or she loses contact with all unbelieving friends within two years. And a lot of times, this is not intentional. We, we, we never seek out or set out to just like, I'm not going to have any Christian friends anymore. Maybe some do, but, but we typically don't set out that way. But, but separatism is very sneaky, and, and there's just this slow, exclusionary separating of ourselves from other people, from the culture around us. Now, let me just say that there are probably some people in places that it might be wise to avoid. There's this wisdom in, around this issue. One of those things is like, for me, when I became a Christian, or when I really started getting serious about following Jesus, um, I was hanging around some colorful people who were doing some very colorful things. And so I knew that if I was going to get serious about following Jesus, if I was still hanging around them, 
then I would be too tempted to fall back into old ways. And so for a time, for a season, for a little bit, while I grew in some discipleship, I needed to put a little bit of distance between me and them. But that's not what we do typically. We, 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 we end up kind of taking this idea, this posture, this attitude that those people are bad and I'm good. I'm better than them because I do this. Likewise, there's probably some places, especially here in Vegas, that we might just, just avoid altogether, right? Like it would be kind of crazy if a group of guys said, hey, Tim, I wanna, let's start a ministry at a strip club. Let's, that, like, like, no, like, like, that's, that's the place that we're going to avoid altogether. Like that's, that's not something, a place that we even need to be going to. So we know that there are some places we shouldn't go. But see, separatistic people... Essentially, what they do is they look at all of culture, they look at film, they look at music, they look at art, and they say, it's bad, we have to avoid it all. Now, I grew up in an independent, fundamentalist, Baptist church. And whenever you see the word fundamentalist in a church's name, run. (laughs) Here's what a fundamentalist is. Fundamentalists are not a lot of fun, they're a whole lot of damn, and they're whole, uh, a little, all a little mental. That's what fundamentalist is. <laughs> and so growing up, we were not allowed to go to the movie theaters. We weren't allowed to listen to rock music. And Christian music, it couldn't have drums. Uh, not, we couldn't go to the roller skating because they played rock music there. And so uh, we, uh, uh, growing up in the church, we, we begin to separate ourselves so much from the culture that our church had no gospel impact on the world around it. That's not why God has us in this world. Now, there's a lot of the reasons why our culture is a mess right now. But maybe one of those reasons is because we have so removed a gospel presence from cultural spaces that it's just allowed to run free. But see, when you begin to look at culture with this lens of faith, with the gospel lens, see, culture and community around us doesn't uh, become this place that I need to completely avoid and separate myself from. I begin to see it as this place that is broken in need of redemption through a gospel presence. And so are we engaging in culture or separating ourselves from it? And so when you get this idea of externalism, where it's all about my external behavior on the outside and separating myself from all those bad people out there or those bad things out there, then what you end up with is this idea called legalism. And legalism is when we use religious rules to gain or keep God's favor. And really all you can do as a legalist is is just, in terms of self-improvement, is just maybe behave a little better next time. Look at verse 31. It says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? He says, by no means. He says, absolutely not. So Paul's affirming that the law, obeying God's law is a good thing and it should be followed. He says, on the contrary, we uphold the law. 
And Paul wants to make it clear right here that he isn't just saying that just because the law doesn't justify that we should do away with it. He says, by no means, that we should still uphold the law. But there's a big difference between how a person who trusts in a law of works and a person who trusts in a law of faith upholds the law. When we uphold the law by a law of works, it always results in legalism. And it's trying to get God to be impressed with us based on what we do or what we don't do. See, both the legalists and the uh, Christ follower, trusting in a law of faith, they both want to uphold the law. But there's a distinct difference in how they do it. See, legalists think, I'm raising the bar by raising the, the moral standard or the moral behavior. But actually what they're doing is they're lowering their bar because they end up making rules that they can follow. See, we know from Scripture that none are righteous, no, not one. So we all fall short. And so there's no way that we can ever meet the bar that the law requires. And so in order for me to justify myself by it, I literally have to lower it to a place where I can follow it. Does that make sense? But those who are trusting in a law of faith, they're actually upholding the law. They're raising it. Because there's, they, they understand and they know there's no way I could actually live up to that. Now, here's the thing about legalism. Legalism, we don't just use it on ourselves. Inevitably, we take that and use it against others. Because the legalist knows there's no way I can fully uphold the law so in order to make myself look better, I have to point out where you don't follow the law. And so we end up using this wheel, the this, this, this sword of legalism. We use it to kind of go around and hack people up with it. And we beat people over the head with our legalistic ways. I used to know someone who would say the most loving thing that you could do for someone is to confront them on their sin. And that statement is true-ish, which makes it very dangerous. Because inevitably, it led to this person being able to go around and say, sin, 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 you're a sinner, that's wrong, you shouldn't be doing that, here's what the Bible says about that, here's what the Bible says about that, sin. Uh, and, and this person was doing it all in the name of love. Because it's loving to do that. Like it's unloving to let someone continue in their sin. So it's my job to make sure that you don't continue in your sin because I'm loving. And it's kind of hard to call that out. But that's what legalism does. You become the moral police. Now, are there times when it's good to approach someone who is caught up in sin and lovingly and kindly, and graciously, and humbly, and very relationally going to them and saying, hey, can we talk about this? Do you, like, are, 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 do you see this in your life? Knowing that at the same time, I struggle with sin as well. 
And can we go to one another and say, hey, can we just be two sinners trying to follow Jesus together and figuring this thing out? That's what it looks like. So, how do we uphold a law of faith? How does faith uphold the law? Well, you uphold a law of faith by putting your faith in the one who fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law on your behalf and who offers his perfect righteousness to you as a gift. When you put your faith and trust in the one who perfectly obeyed the law, you are upholding the law. See, Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law, not abolish the law. And how did Jesus fulfill the law? First, he fulfilled the law by obeying the law perfectly. Like everything, like Jesus was without sin, so he perfectly obeyed. Second, the law demands justice for those who break it. So there's a fulfillment that needs to take place there. But so Jesus, through his death, fulfilled the law's demand for justice because of our breaking of it. I think Philippians 2.8 sums this up perfectly. It says, um, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Meaning he obeyed everything and it cost him everything to, to do that. Even death on a cross. That's our redemption. Jesus fulfilled the law through his perfect obedience to God the Father. And then by offering his life in place of our, fulfilled the just demands of the law on us. And so now Jesus' perfect record is credited to us. And so when God looks down at us, he doesn't see us dirty sinners. He sees Jesus' perfect righteousness. And so because now we are redeemed in Christ and we now have a relationship with God the Father, we as his children want to be like Christ, which means we want to obey the law as well, right? And so we're not saying forget it. We want to obey the law like Jesus obeyed the law. But we also know that we can't. And so to the best of our ability, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we do our best to follow the law like Jesus. But when we fall short, we don't beat ourselves up. We just trust in Jesus' obedience where he did not fall short. Amen? That's how we uphold the law. Now let me ask you a question. At the beginning of this sermon... We ask the question, what are you boasting in? And we all agreed that we were supposed to, or should, as Christ followers, boast in Christ alone. That's what we confess, that's what we profess as Christ followers. But do we live that out in our lives? Is there areas of your life where you're practicing this idea of externalism? Is there areas of your life where you're pretending to be okay when you're really not? Is there something in your life that, you're, that you're, you're not telling others that you're struggling with? Maybe there's this secret sin that no one knows about and you're taking it there and you're struggling with it and it's eating you up on the inside and it's rotting you from your bones. But you're holding yourself out as someone who does not struggle. Let me just say to you this morning, let someone know. Find someone and just say, hey, here is where I struggle. Will you help me? Or 
are you practicing this idea of separatism? Where we kind of live in our self-righteous bubble and kind of look down on people who maybe don't believe or think the way we do or maybe they are different politically than we are. And we kind of hold ourselves at bay. And we have to separate ourselves from them instead of being in relationship with them and allowing our gospel presence to come and be able to influence the people around us. So, when you look at your life, practically speaking, what are you boasting in? Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And we hold that we are justified by Jesus as a free gift from you. Father, we hold that, we confess that, and we praise you for that. But Father, we come before you this morning and we just ask for forgiveness for the times that we don't live out our belief. Or maybe we are just so worried more about what things look like on the outside, but we're not paying so much to the inside. Father, forgive us those times where we kind of look down on others as being less than us because we think differently or believe differently. And Father, just forgive us of our own self-righteousness. We're just finding different things to, to justify us before you other than Jesus. Father, forgive us for our pride and our lack of humility. And just forgetting sometimes that we are all sinners and we are all in need of a Savior. And so, Father, we thank you, though, that you don't leave us there, that you love us and you forgive us because of Jesus. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.